Today, when you got up, you started making decisions. Our lives are filled with decisions. And in our culture, we sometimes get overwhelmed with the number of decisions we make. I mean, the alarm goes off and you make a decision, snooze button or get up, right? And then you get out of bed and, and you decide to, uh, to go out in the kitchen. And for me, it's, is it coffee today or is it tea? I can go both ways. So it's coffee or is it tea? I've got another decision to make. And then, and then I go in, in the closet and pick out clothes to wear and decisions to make. And for some of you, what service do you want to attend? Or even if you want to go to church or not, and how much I'm going to give and all these things. And we get overwhelmed by the amount of decisions. And some decisions are very small, like the ones I've described, but some get bigger. On Saturday, it's my sermon um, manuscript day. I write out the whole sermon uh, on Saturdays, the, the full length, and Saturday's also college football day. And so I know I could watch football from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, but I can't do that. So I pick one game, my Wisconsin Badgers game. That's the one game I'm going to watch, and then I'm going to work on the sermon the other times. And then there are some decisions that you make, and I've had to make this week, that are big decisions, decisions that affect my life and the people around me, decisions that have to do with our staff or decisions that have to do with hiring people or decisions that have to do with, with how we treat people and our relationships. So some decisions are bigger than others, and we can get so overwhelmed by the amount of decisions we make. I mean, if you ever stood in front of the cabinet or the refrigerator, just stood there and go, I can't even make a decision right now. I, I don't know. I don't, you make a decision for me. And then the kids come, right? Parents, kids come to you and say, hey, I'm trying to make a decision on this. And if you're stressed out with your own decisions, here's what you'll do. You'll take control and you'll tell them, here's what I'm going to decide for you. And then you just tell your kids what they need to do and to do it quickly. We just get so overwhelmed. So I want to tell you today that there is a decision you can make. And actually, there are decisions you can make that make all your other decisions easier. And wouldn't it be a relief to you to know that if you made certain decisions, all the other stress in your life would kind of wane away? Would you like that? If you, if you came today stressed out by decisions you have to make, if you could leave today feeling like, Pastor, that helped me, I, I can now get control of the decisions I have to make in my life, they, they become much easier. Would you like that? Because the story we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 3 addresses this issue. See, the best decisions are the decisions you make before you have to make a decision. Hear, hear me. The best decisions you'll make are the decisions you make before you have to make a decision. In other words, what I'm saying is the best decisions are made in advance. That the best decisions you'll ever make are the ones that you make when you're not stressed, when you're not in the crisis of the moment you've made ahead of time. Let me give you an example. The other night, uh, I was at a dinner, and a man came by the dessert section. You know what? Churches are famous for potlucks and stuff. There's a number of desserts to choose from. And, and I said, which one are you going to choose? Because for me, I like to get a slice of that, a piece of that, a little bit of that. And he says, no, I, I'm not going to do any of them. I said, none of them? He said, no, my wife decided I needed to be on a diet, and I agreed. So that's not even an option now. The decision they made in their living room at the house, or maybe it was the bedroom at the house, whatever they made it, they made a decision then, made this a non-factor. Let me give you another example. It's the decision of a teenager to say, I'm going to wait until I get married to have sexual relationships with somebody. You, and, and that person finds themselves in a compromising position or the boyfriend or the girlfriend wants to hang out late at night or get alone in a dark place and you're not in the pressure of the moment having to decide. I'm telling you this, it is not the place in the backseat of a car to decide, am I going to be pure or not? I'm, I'm really wrestling with that. It's a decision you make way before. If you want to be pure, you make it before so you don't get in that situation. Or the soldier that goes off and says, I will be faithful to my wife no matter what. That's a commitment I've made. That's not... That's, 
I can't do that. I don't go to those places. I don't do those things because I've made this decision. Do you see what I'm saying? When you make the decision up front in a moment where you know what you're doing, then you relieve yourself of the pressure of having to make a decision at the crisis of a moment. Some of you find the offering time is a crisis moment. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to decide. But others have said, you know what? I've already decided what I'm going to do a long time ago. So I don't even have to decide. I just do what I've already decided to do. And that's the whole point. The best decisions are the ones you make ahead. And so as we get ready to go into this story in Daniel 3 and learn about some critical decisions that make every other decision easier, I'm going to ask you if you'd open up your heart and listen to what God would say to you today. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that these ancient stories have relevance for us today. We pray that you would speak powerfully and clearly to each one of us in whatever situation we are in, Father, to make a critical decision today to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series. It's week number three, the book of Daniel. We're taking the first six chapters, one chapter each week. And the series is called Exiles because God's people have been exiled from Jerusalem to this pagan nation called Babylon. And they are trying to get uh, indoctrinated in the culture of the Babylonians so the king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, can actually raise some of these leaders up to be rulers in his kingdom. And we've run into guys like Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and, and all these guys that are part of a group of people who are loyal to God in the midst uh, of this pagan nation. Now, last week, Daniel was called upon to interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. And Daniel had prayed that God would not only explain the dream to him, but the meaning of the dream, and God did. And in that dream, he saw this statue Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue that, was, that had a head of gold, chest and, and arms of silver, um, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs and feet of iron and then iron mixed with clay. And they all represented different kingdoms, but the first kingdom, the kingdom of gold, represented Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you will find out that Nebuchadnezzar has quite the ego. In fact, don't miss next week. It's going to be a, a great look at what pride can do to a person. And we all struggle with pride to some degree or another. But he's a very proud man. So because he's the, the gold head on the statue, that seems to be the motivation for what we're going to encounter in chapter 3. He builds this 90-foot-tall gold statue, puts it out in the plains, and then he tells all of his people that when the music starts, everyone is to bow down and worship the God. If they don't, they'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. So this guy, this guy's pretty intense about it. You will worship the God I set up or you will die. And so we pick up the story in chapter 3 with verse 8 because we find that there's some guys who won't bow down. Here's where the story picks up. Verse 8, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So the edict went out. Everyone is called to bow down except these three decided they weren't going to do it. And here's where we find the first big decision of who you're going to side with. Which side are you going to stand on? Who, who will be the group that you will say, that's my people? Those are the ones I'll be with. 
See, right now in our culture, I think every sporting event begins with the national anthem. And when the band starts to play, people rise up on their feet, and put, some put their hand on their heart, and some take their hats off, and some begin to sing, and some stand reverently. doesn't matter what color jersey they're wearing. doesn't matter what their background is. They all stand as a united group to pay homage to the flag of the United States of America, except right now in our culture, there's some that when the music starts, they don't stand. They go down to a knee. And so the cameras make sure they highlight that person. The announcers make a point to point out those who aren't cooperating and they want to they point out that there's a little protest going on right in our presence. Now, I'm not here to debate the pros and cons of whether you're for it or against it, but I want to tell you this, that whenever you go against the norm, you, you set yourself up as a target. And some of these athletes have become targets of criticism. Some have even received death threats. And you would say, you know, just, just go along with it. Just go along with it. I mean, in this story, most of the people just went along with it. It's believed that there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that are all bowed down in worship to this God, except for three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All the other Jewish people that they came over with, they're bowing down too, and you could see why some of them might do it. I mean, think through the reasons why you would bow down if you were in that situation. Remember, if you don't, it's the blazing furnace. So in your mind, you're telling yourself this, well, everybody's supposed to do it. I'm going to bow on the outside, but not the inside. Surely God understands my dilemma. Well, the king's been good to us, and so this would be good for him. I'm just going to do it for now, and then I'm going to ask God forgiveness before I go to bed. We rationalize. When you rationalize, you tell yourself rational lies. Lies that sound good, they sound pretty convincing, they make me believe it's true, but it's a rationalization nonetheless. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are leaders in Babylon at the time, placed in positions of authority, are making a stand. They're not making a scene. They're making a stand. They're not shaming anybody else who bows. They're not holding up a a placard. They're not saying, one, two, three, four, we're not going to bow before. You know, they're not doing anything like that. They're, they're, they're just quietly standing there. Nobody has a rainbow wig on, you know. They're just saying, we're just not going to bow. We're not going to bow. And this decision was costly because they knew if you don't bow, you will burn. And I thought of, I've thought at times of various ways I might die. I, I don't want to drown. I'm scared to death of suffocation. And I don't want to burn. I mean, just the thought of that is terrifying. And, and, and if someone would say, you know, you do this or you get thrown into the fire, and honestly, there have been people in other cultures, even this day and age, who said, if you don't deny your faith, we're going to pour gasoline on you and light you on fire. There's videos on YouTube of Christians who've been burned to death by Islamic terrorists. I mean, that's a frightening predicament to, to be told, you will burn if you don't bow. But they made a decision that they were not going to bow. Now, they didn't make the decision, though, that day. They made it a long time before. See, when all the Jews were brought over from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they were told that they were going to be indoctrinated in Babylonian culture and told that, that they were going to become one of them, they were even given new names, Babylonian names like these guys were, These three in Daniel said, "Uh, we're not going to go that far. 
we're not going to lose our roots. We're not going to lose our identity. And part of that identity was the God who gave them the laws through Moses. The Ten Commandments begin like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other, what? Gods before me. Can't bow down. I've got my God. I can't bow down. They, they knew that. And so when the, we know that because in chapter 1, when they were offered these five-star recruits, these, these handsome, gifted, talented, wise young men, teenagers, who were going to be groomed for service in the Babylonian kingdom, and they were, they were offered the meat and the wine from the king's table, that they said no to ribeye and cabernet. Instead, they said, we'll take vegetables and water. And they were proven faithful and they were promoted because of their stand and because they were healthier. These guys had already determined because that meat that was being offered to them had previously been offered to the gods, which is pretty, pretty common in cultures like that. They said, no, no, that would defile us. We're not going to do that. They already declared where their loyalty stood. So now it came time to say, okay, once again, prove where your loyalties are. Well, well of course I can't bow. We, we have our God. It's not an option. Because they, they had chosen already who they were going to to side with. When I was in high school, my first experience in my high school youth group was that I, I wasn't a Christian at the time, and I wasn't that interested in churchy things. And so I started hung, hanging out with the kids who were the rebels, who actually would slip out of the youth meeting and go to another room, tell dirty jokes, and hang out with the girlfriends, and, and you know, do things. And you know, I started to, to make them my people. I remember the first time I tried smoking like they did, I gagged. I thought, why would anyone want smoke in their lungs? It just is, it's horrible. Um, but if that's what it takes, I'm willing to do it. And, and if you have to mess around with your girlfriend to be part of the group, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I almost went off the edge and did some really bad stuff, but it seemed like God rescued me. And the next summer, I gave my life to Christ. And I hooked up with a group of, of radical, uh, on fire for Jesus kids, and it changed the rest of my life. You choose who to side with, and it'll have a big, big factor in where you go in life. Psalm Chapter 1, the very first verse, and we think of Psalms as being a worship manual for, for following God, but listen to the very first verse of all the Psalms. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Blessed is the one who says, uh-uh, I'm not, I don't hang with those people because those people aren't taking me in the direction that I need to go or the direction God wants me to go. And you have to choose who will be my people, who are the people that I'll stand with? And, and these three men said, we're in this together. That's my team. Even though there's only three of us, that's the group I'm going to stand with. And you have to choose in your life who are the ones you will side with. And it makes all the difference in where you end up because the people around you influence you. And I just watch the soldiers in our church when they're surrounded by young men who have hormones raging, who have very little values, who are vulgar, who, are, who have a dirty mind, and it takes a strong man to say, you know what? That's not the guy I want to become. Those guys aren't going the direction I want to go. And you've got to fight and resist that because you're going upstream. But that's a commitment you make because you made a previous commitment that I'm going to honor God with my life. In 1 Corinthians 15, it just says, bad company corrupts good character. If you've got a bad apple in a bushel basket, I can just tell you that bad apple is going to have a big influence on the rest of the apples in that bushel basket. It just happens. You get around some bad people, they will influence you. So I try to intentionally surround myself with good people. I have lunch with people that are going in the direction I want to go in. I'm in a small group that is filled with people who are going in the direction I want to go. 
And when you go in that direction, just know you're probably the minority and you're probably going upstream. You feel like a salmon going upstream. And the only salmon that go downstream are the dead ones. Okay? So just know if you want life, if you want to follow God's way, you'll be in the minority and there'll be resistance. But nevertheless, I'm going to choose to stand with these people. See, people who don't stand for anything will fall for everything. And you've got to find some people who have convictions and stand with them. Good, godly convictions. So here's what happens. We'll pick up the story in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, he's going to give them another chance. Make sure they understand what they're doing. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So the next major decision they made in advance was a decision who they would disappoint. You have to decide who you will intentionally disappoint. John Lydgate, a monk and a poet, said you can please some of the people all the time. You can please all the people some of the time, but you cannot please all the people all of the time. And that's hard for us to, to handle because a lot of us are people pleasers. We like making people happy. And so the thought of disappointing someone intentionally is like so far from us. But the truth is, the older, the older you get, you're going to realize, I've got to choose the most important people to make happy in my life. And they're not making the king very happy. He's furious with rage. And he gives them a, a, another chance. He, you can just, just picture the environment. Scripture doesn't tell the whole story, but I, I, I just picture him yelling, screaming at these guys. You're leaders! I put you in positions of power! And you're a bad example to everyone. I'm going to give you one more chance. When you hear the music, just fall down and you worship. You know, anger can be a motivator. Get angry mom or dad, boss, motivating. But you know what else? Another, another trick of manipulation, if that doesn't work, threaten them with pain. Because if you don't, you're going in the fire. Okay? How, how many of us as parents have used anger and 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 the threat of pain to get our kids to eat their vegetables, do their homework, clean up the room. You know, we've done that. It doesn't work too good, does it? Because when someone's stubborn and someone's making a stand, they say, you can scream all you want, you can threaten me all you want, but I've already made my choice. And my, my choice is that I don't have to make you happy right now because I'm choosing to make someone else happy. It reminds me of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 where they were told to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And, and the response was, we must obey, obey God rather than human beings. You know, we're going to please God more than we're going to please men. That's just the choice we're going to make with our lives. And so I've learned in my own life that I've got to make choices of who I'm going to make happy and, and honestly, who I'm going to disappoint. So in my schedule, I've got blocks of time that I said, these people will be priority, these events will be priority in my life. And that means if someone says, hey, pastor, can you... Can you meet on Wednesday morning? That's, I've got some free time. I said, no, no that's my sermon prep today. Sorry, I can't do, do that. I, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's my priority. Friday's my day with my wife. People call up and say, hey, can you do this church thing on the day? I said, sorry, that's my wife's day. I got to make her happy. If mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. 
I'm okay if you're not happy. I can live with that. <laughs> this is what I can't live with. And I've got, I've got times in my schedule where, you know, I've learned. Because um, in the past, my family always got pushed to the edges, and everyone else fit in. You want to meet in the evening? Sure, I can be there. What time? 7 o'clock? That'll work. You want to meet? Okay, Saturday? I'll make it Saturday. And my family got the scraps, and I realized I was disappointing my family. I, I can afford to disappoint some other people. Now, I also want to say this. There are sometimes I disappoint my family intentionally because I have a job, and I've, I've signed a contract that I'll commit certain hours and fulfill certain duties. And sometimes, I think this is true even of our, of our younger culture, and, and especially of saying, you know, my family comes first. I would say, yes, except to where you have a job. Because if you contract with a job, with an employer, you have an obligation that these hours or this, this part of my life is devoted to them so I can get a paycheck to provide for my family. I knew a young man whose, whose wife had a baby, and, and they gave him three days off. And on the fourth day, he says, well, I'm not coming down on the fourth day either because my family comes first. I said, do you want a paycheck or a pink slip? They were generous to you. And there comes a point where your job has to now take priority. And so we just have to decide who and when we are going to please different people in our lives. And these men decided we don't have to make the king happy. We don't even have to defend ourselves before him because we're not seeking to please him. We're seeking to please God. And here's what they say. Our God might save us, but even if he doesn't, we'll not bow down. So let's listen to the rest of the story and another decision that they make. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes by the way, that's very flammable stuff. So we're making sure these guys are like, they're, they're get, you know, we're making sure they burn well. They're bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so high that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You almost can picture this chaotic environment. Wrap them up, tie, wrap them, throw them into the fire, do it now. And while they're hastening to do all this and they throw them in the fire that's been made seven times hotter than normal, they are barbecued in the process. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. You think it's the end, but it's not. Because then the king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair, nor was a hair of their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They made another decision, one that they made far in advance, who they were going to trust. When they expressed their trust to Nebuchadnezzar, that they were okay with his edict that they'd be thrown in the fire, that their God was able to save them, but even if he didn't, they would not bow down. It says his attitude changed. Did you think, oh, good, he kind of came around, but no, it got worse. It got worse. 
And they ramped up the fire. They bound him even tighter. He got strongmen to tie the ropes tighter around their wrist. And they pushed him into the fire where they fell on the ground. And yet you never heard these men cry out. You never heard these men swear. You never hear these men complain at all. They just accept their fate. And I believe that they were doing what David says in Psalm 56.4. This was their statement. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I would rather burn in a fire of Nebuchadnezzar than burn in an eternal fire prepared by my Father in heaven as a judge for the wicked. So that this is it. That's okay. I'm entrusting myself to God. And, the, the, and, and while they're in there, this amazing thing happens. The king jumps to his feet. He cannot believe it. The guys aren't laying on the floor burnt. They're actually walking around saying, it's a hot day. It's a little, little toasty in here. Can, 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 can you hand me the, um, the, the, the suntan lotion? No, I need a little bit more here. You know, this is it's a little, little toasty, but I, 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 it's okay. I can tolerate it. They're walking around. The king cannot believe it. But the, the weirdest thing is there's a fourth guy. There's a fourth guy. Now, who is this? Where does this fourth one come from? And he says, it looks like one of the, the sons of the gods. This is believed by most to be a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus, the Son of God, who hasn't been born yet in a manger, but who lives in heaven with his father, who's he's come here as a visitation to show his presence with them. And Nebuchadnezzar is in awe of them. And these men then are called out unharmed, unscathed, not a single hair on their head even singed. Now, remember they had, they had told him that even if he doesn't rescue us, I wonder, would we look at the story differently if God had not rescued them from the fire? Would you have felt differently about God if the end of the story was they burned, they died, but they held on to their faith? See, sometimes we, we say, like, God, I will trust you if you do this for me. God, if you come through, then I will trust you. But do you have the kind of faith that says, God, even if you don't do the things I hope you do, I still trust you? I mean, if you go through the fire, whether it be literal or figurative, why would, why would a loving God allow you to go through that? Pastor Sam showed me a picture um, this week. It's a picture up on the, the Haman fire area, and you see a the dead trees in the background, but all around there you see new life sprouting up. God has a way of bringing life through the fire. And remember the lesson we learned the last two weeks that God positions you for his purpose? Maybe the reason you're going through a fire in your life, and that fire could be a relational fire, could be an emotional fire, could be something that's just ravaging you and you wonder, God, where are you? That God says, don't despair. This is for your growth. Because I think several things happen in the midst of the fire. God, for one, reveals his presence. I don't know if we really understand his commitment to be with us always until we go through the, the, the hellfire and we go through this very difficult season of our lives and go, God, this has been tormenting. And he says, but I've been there right with you. Sometimes we don't see him until we get into the fire. Sometimes people around us don't see him until we go through the fire. And maybe instead of saying, God, get me out of the fire, we should be praying, God, reveal yourself to me in the midst of the fire I'm going through. Something else that happens in the midst of the fire is God displays his power in rescuing them. How would they know him as redeemer unless they needed redemption? How would you know God as your provider unless you needed provision? How would you know God as your healer unless you were broken in some area of your life? 
And sometimes God allows that so he can show himself powerful in our lives. But here's the most amazing thing I think I see from this story. That God uses the fire to release his children. And what I mean by that is when these men were thrown into the fire and then when they came out, there was only one thing different about them. I don't know if you caught that piece of the story. One thing different about the time they were thrown into the fire and the time they came out of the fire. And it wasn't their hair was burned, they smelled like smoke. It wasn't any of that. The ropes were gone. They were unharmed and unbound. That's so important. Because they, would, they didn't become unbound until they went into the fire. And sometimes God takes us into the fire to bring us freedom. I mean, it sounds crazy. But sometimes God takes us to, to this place to say, you're going to have to revisit that place. Remember all that torment that happened in your life? You're, you're, you're going to revisit it, but know that I'm with you in the midst of that. And in the process, you go through a healing and you come out unbound. For some of you, you say, I don't want to go to that place. It's too painful. And God says, I'm going to take you through the fire. I am with you. But when you come out, you'll be free because that's his ultimate goal for us, to be free. God is working out his purpose in the midst of the fire. I love Jesus. He's so good. And here's what I found to be true. When I fell for Jesus... It allowed me to stand for Jesus. And some of you just need to fall for him, fall in love with him, and then stand for him. We're told in Scripture, stand firm then. Stand firm then. Be courageous and strong. And see, the best decisions you'll ever make are the ones you make way in advance so that when you get in the moment of the heat and the fire, you say, that's okay because I made this decision way back here. But here's the best decision of all. The, the biggest decision you could ever make is this. Simply say, Jesus, be Lord. Be the Lord of my life. Remember, this whole theme of Daniel is who's in control, that God's in control. And when you let him be in control of your life, everything else starts to fall into place. When you make Jesus Lord, it already, it already says yes to certain things and no to other things. They're not an option anymore. And here's where we get in trouble. For many of us in this room, we've said, well, I, I call Jesus my Lord, but you don't live like it. You really don't live like it because you keep having to make decisions about things that deal with lordship, financial, relational, moral, all those things. You're having to decide over and over, and you shouldn't have to re-decide them because if Jesus is Lord, you just follow him in all those areas of life. And see, the problem is we, we love knowing that he's Savior, can rescue us from the fire, but you love him as Lord. You love him as Lord. I know there are people in this room who along the way have said, you know what? I'm choosing to disappoint some people in my life because I need to follow Jesus. And so, Mom and Dad, I love you. I love the fact that you baptized me when I was a baby. I love the fact that you took me to church. But I'm at a place now where I have to decide for myself who I'm going to follow. I know I'm going to that crazy non-denominational church now, but that's what I've got to do. I've got to be around people who are going in the direction I want to go. I want to be around people who call Jesus Lord. And so, you know what? I'm going to be baptized as an adult now to demonstrate my commitment. I'm going to go forward at that church to show that I'm surrendered to the God because that's what I need to do to show that Jesus is Lord. What do you need to do to show Jesus is your Lord? Today, 